series of passages in Acts. Now, last week, David was talking to us about the fact that at its absolute foundation and at its absolute base, the gospel story and the gospel um, message is inherently relational. And when we say that, what we mean is that when the early church were seeking to um, go out and to make converts, they were not going out and um, making converts as a result of, um, um, they were not utilizing programs and systems and structures in order to do this. They were going out and invariably it was an individual talking to another individual or it was um, an individual talking to a group or, or a small group talking to a larger group. And um, converts were one this way. Do you know, they did not rely on the likes of Alpha or um, Christianity Explored um, in order to bring about conversion. Now, these things are good, these things are right, and they have their place. But what David was saying last week is that the gospel at its very heart is a relational message. And this week, I think we would be um, remiss um, if we were to talk about our um, evangelism, if we were to talk about gospel growth without talking about the fact that at um, its heart, in some sense, the gospel is inherently offensive. Now, not necessarily to every single person that we speak to, not necessarily to every single person that we come into contact with, but there are groups out there and there are folks out there who find the gospel message offensive. And I think sometimes in, 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 in church, um, we can be guilty of, of hearing stories or of just hearing stories or just wanting to, to um, tell stories where, um, you know, somebody says, um, stands up and they say, um, I was standing at the bus stop and the Lord told me to speak to this total stranger who I'd never met before and to tell her that, that, that Jesus loves you and that um, um, he knows what you're going through and, and it's all going to be all right in the end. And that person burst into tears and said, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Praise God. And they're converted there and then at this bus stop. Okay. That's sometimes the kind of stories that we, that we like to hear. And these things are good. These things are, are God glorifying and they are edifying. But the truth is that this is not the story. This is not reflective of a lot of people's experience 100% of the time when they are trying to evangelize or when they are trying to tell other people about God and about who he is and what he's done and why that matters for their lives. Because there's people out there who find the gospel message inherently offensive and they are going to reject whatever we say even if it sounds perfectly logical, even if it sounds perfectly feasible, even if it sounds in some sense to them it sounds right, they are going to reject it because it does not tie in, it does not fall in line with the things that they had in mind for their lives. And tied in with this as well is the fact that actually for many of us, the prospect of telling other people about Jesus is inherently scary. We do. We, there's, there's a fear for us tied up in these things. There's a fear that we will um, perhaps, um, there will be a loss of reputation in there. There might be a loss of credibility. We might be branded Bible bashers. We might be seen to be um, stuffing um, the Christian faith in the throats of people who do not want to hear anything about it. This is part of the reason that we, are, that we, we, we so often find it difficult to tell other people about Jesus, particularly, I think, in our own day and age where um, we are worried, we are concerned about offending people. Um, and, and I read an article this week which said that, that, that we live in a, in a time, we live in an age, we live in an era where um, people are, are more offended, are more regularly offended by anything than at any other point in human history. And this is the kind of culture, this is the society that we are taking the gospel message into. But don't think for a moment that we are any different from the early church, that, that somehow the early church, the, the church in Acts as it was growing and it was developing, somehow had a kind of um, um, special dispensation or, or had some kind of um, secret that they, were, that they were privy to that we've lost that allowed them to just go out and, and tell the gospel and folks would respond in a way that they don't today. The early church was largely um, rejected wherever it went. We read this all the way throughout Acts. The early church is not 
well received. Early Christian faith was offensive to almost everyone it encountered because it was offensive because um, Christianity at its foundation required a complete reorientating and a complete shift in terms of our perceptions towards all of life. For those who heard the gospel, it meant a change in lifestyle. It meant that they had to reorder their politics. It meant that that the converts had to to reorder their relationships, relationships with spouses, with um, parents, with children, with friends, with extended family. The relationship between masters and servants changed. The relationship between nations, between Jew and Gentile, had to change. But on top of this, it meant that there had to be a reordering of the finances and the economics of Christian believers. And this is the case because Jesus affects and impacts every single part of the life of the Christian believer. We cannot turn to Jesus and lay our life at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, you have those five bits and I'll keep these two bits behind because these bits are going quite well and I quite like how these bits are going. So, so you have that and I'll keep this. That's not how it works. So the gospel at its foundation was inherently offensive to large groups of people and it's against this backdrop that we come to our passage today. Now, when we read uh, the second part of uh, um, Acts chapter 19, um, Paul has been in Ephesus for about three years at this point. We see at the start of chapter 19 that Paul and his teaching were um, little more than an annoyance to the Ephesians. Um, at the start of chapter 19, we read of, of, of many people hearing the gospel. We read of some coming to faith as, in, as a result of that. And then we read of some remaining stubborn in the face of the things that they are hearing. And this is the pattern that we see all the way throughout the Acts of the Apostles. The early church, the Apostles, Paul, Peter, um, all the folks who are evangelizing, who are preaching and teaching, go to a place, tell them the story of the gospel. Some turn to the faith, some are converted and others reject it. The gospel is preached, as I say, there's a real push against it, but even so, all the way through the Acts of the Apostles, we read that believers were added to their number all the time. And by the time we reach chapter 19, this pattern has already repeated itself, I think about nine or ten times already. And this isn't by chance. Luke, who was the author of Acts, this is his policy in writing and in documenting the Acts of the Apostles. And as he does so, he is demonstrating that there is a repeated response to the gospel, whatever it is faithfully preached. He's demonstrating that it is initially rejected. It gets groups up in arms. But even in spite of that, the gospel movement grows and develops and puts down roots. And as Luke says these things, as Luke writes these things down for us, as he repeats them for us, He wants us to understand that there is no other pattern for gospel growth in our world and that opposition to it is inevitable. The nature of human will and its its true nature as entirely sinful is to resist anything that places any kind of imposition on our lives. Anything that points us to the fact that there is indeed a good God and forces us to orient our lives around something else that isn't ourselves is seen to be entirely offensive. There will be resistance, but in fact, Luke is saying that through that resistance, the gospel will grow. 
And now these things reach a boiling point. They reach fever pitch in verses 23 to 41 of Acts chapter 19. The Christian faith in Ephesus has grown. We read that in verse 20 from from being a minor irritation to the Ephesians to being a significant thorn in the side of the establishment. To the point where a silversmith named Demetrius in verse 24 decides, I've had enough. I'm going to do something about this. So he gathers together um, all of his uh, his colleagues, all the craftsmen um, who are involved in making um, shrines of the goddess Artemis. And he says to them that, um, um, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business. He makes his motives clear when he gathers his, his, his colleagues together, when he gathers the craftsmen together. Because we read that Demetrius was a silversmith, and he makes idols of the goddess Artemis, and we have to believe that he was not making cheap idols. He's making the kind of idols you'd go to John Lewis for. He's not making cheap ones. And as the Christian faith grew, as the Christian faith developed, as the Christian faith won converts, we need to believe that actually he, the, the Christian faith was taking a massive cut out of his business. Because his livelihood and his business was dependent upon the sale of these idols. But he makes his motives clear when he says, you know, my friends, in verse 25, you know, my friends, we we receive a good income from this business. So on the face of it in Ephesus, Artemis was their god. Artemis was their god. And if you've got a moment later on, I would go home and Google these um, statues of Artemis that they make because they're, they're horrible, they're grotesque. And the people of Ephesus threw themselves before these um, statues and these idols and these, these um, um, goddesses. But when we read this verse, and we read this line in verse 25, we see that Artemis actually was not the god of the Ephesians. Because their considerations were purely economic. Money was their god. And he couches his accusation of Paul in terms that the crowd would understand in um, in, in verse 26. And we see countless examples of the early church um, taking the message of um, um, the gospel and and, and making it relevant and and making it context specific to places that they go and preach. So for example, when Paul is preaching in Athens, he conveys the truth of the gospel, he conveys the truth of who God is and um, and the difference that he makes and why that should matter to the people of Athens in a way that they can understand. And this is how the gospel grows through the book of Acts. The apostles and and, and Paul and Peter and, and the other disciples, they're taking the message out and they are making the message relevant to the places that they are going. Now, that's not to say that they are, are, are watering the message down or that they're changing the message, but they are making it relevant. They are, are applying the message that they are taking into the lives of the folks who are hearing them. And this is exactly what Demetrius is doing here today. He's doing the exact same thing. And, and we might look at what Demetrius says and the way that he whips up the crowd, and we might want to call this something um, like um, secular evangelism, because that's what it is. You might want to call it secular evangelism because he is evangelizing, but he is doing so for entirely the wrong reasons and to an ultimately fruitless end. And we will see the results of this in just a moment. But whilst he is a a skilled public speaker, whilst he is skilled in, as I've said, whipping up a crowd and getting them on side, we see that the argument that he offers in response to the gospel is so transparent that you would think it was a miracle that the crowd fell for it at all. Demetrius says to the crowd, he says to his colleagues, you know, Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. 
Now, you, you, you do not need to be a genius to understand that if you are able to make a god, then the thing that you have made, whatever it may be, is definitely not a god. If humanity is the originator of our own gods, then humanity is that god's god. You following me? If humanity is the originator of our own gods, then humanity is that god's god. We cannot possibly create a God who has any sort of power or authority over anything. And I think this morning, particularly in the the sermons that we have been hearing, we can take great encouragement and great solace from the fact that we are not the originator of our own salvation. If our status as saved in the eyes of the Lord was dependent upon us, then we would definitely not be able to keep it. The salvation that I trust in, the redemption that I am sure of, the hope that I cling to, does not come from this world. It does not originate in the minds or in the hands or in the workshops of men and women. It is held entirely in the palm of Jesus Christ. And this is the message that we offer the world. Our evangelism challenges the contemporary shrines of our day. Now, the unbeliever perhaps finds assurance or fulfillment in in their bank balance or or in possessions or in holidays or or cars or in relationships. And I don't say that as if we are not guilty of, of finding fulfillment in these things. But the truth is, and the difference is, that Christ offers freedom from the ways of our world. Freedom from bondage to the idols that are constantly expecting and anticipating more. Constantly and anticipating, expecting us to increase our devotion to these idols in order to maintain that same level of of fulfillment and alleged freedom that they supposedly offer. And I think in the church today, the truth is that it's not only possessions and it's not only these things that, that have power, have this power over us. Because we see that, as I've said, not only the, it's not only the unbeliever who is guilty of falling foul of this. We see in Acts chapter 5 that the, um, the religious leaders were jealous of the apostles because of their teaching and because of the signs and the wonders that they were doing out in the streets of Jerusalem. And they were jealous. We read that they were jealous in Acts chapter 5. That's what it says, that the religious leaders were jealous of them. Because they were reducing the influence of the temple. That's what was happening. The apostles were offering the forgiveness and offering the redemption out on the streets that should have been offered by the temple. All too often in the church, we we can replace prayer with programs. We can replace um, salvation with systems. All too often, maintenance replaces mission. We become perhaps tied to to buildings or to historical structures or to tradition. We become unable to function as we have been called to function because our hands are tied in binds of our own making. And these things can so easily become a kind of functional idolatry. We maybe don't see them as an idol, but they do. we, we, We um, adhere more to the, the, the systems and the structures and the tradition, more, though, more than we do to the Word of God in our lives. 
And when we rely on the idols of our own making, or when we are persuaded by the arguments and the teachings of our world over and above the arguments and the truths presented to us in the gospel as faithfully taught to us, confusion reigns. We see in verses 28 to 34 that um, the crowd starts shouting. And actually, uh, we we read in uh, in verse 28 that um, um, uh, most of the people don't actually know why they are there. Sorry, not verse 28, but we read in the passage, most of the people don't actually know why they are there. They know that they're against Paul. Or in fact, they, they know that they ought to be against Paul because that's what Demetrius has told them but they don't know why they should be against it. Confusion reigns. And even when when someone tries to reason with them, the noise gets louder. They just shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're shouting, but really they're not saying anything at all. Can you imagine walking down Glasgow and, 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 and for two hours a crowd just standing, gathered, shouting, you know, great as the Rolling Stones or, 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 or great as, um, um, Gordon's not here, great as Aberdeen Football Club. It just wouldn't happen. But this is what it's like. This is the kind of things that they are doing. They're just standing, shouting for the sake of shouting. Confusion reigns. We don't want to listen to reason. When we have been persuaded by the arguments of our world, we don't want to listen to reason. We don't want to own up to the fact that Christ is holding up a mirror to the darkness in our own lives. Because this is where the crowd in Ephesus was. But in the face of all of this, in the face of, of, of riots, and in the face of, of potential violence, and in the face of a city coming out against them, we see that Paul and the apostles are, at the end of it all, vindicated by the gospel. The crowd are after them, but they are ultimately viewed, that is the apostles and Paul, the crowd are after the apostles and, and Paul, but they are ultimately viewed as righteous by those in power. I wish I could spend more time on this, but our time is, is quickly going away. But I, um, um, it's really, really fascinating that um, um, they are defended by the city authorities and by the city um, managers. The message that Paul and the apostles are preaching, their evangelism, is bringing out the worst in the world around them. It is doing as it always does, it is always, as it always has done. It is exposing the deepest and most basic instincts in humanity. The gospel exposes the things which truly drive us. It exposes the shrines and the idols that we build up in our lives. Now, for the Ephesians on the surface, it was this man-made God, it was Artemis. But when you scratch below the surface, we see that it was really money and finance and wealth and prestige and, and status and all of these worldly things that they, were, that they were pursuing. And the gospel cuts to the heart of that. It cuts through. It cuts to the quick. The clear and easily understood message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection alongside the explanation of what that means for us in our lives. It cuts through. It cuts through all the the noise and the confusion and the nonsense. And this is the message that we are taking out with us into the world. A message that goes against the grain. A message that acts like a scalpel cutting through the hard outer shell that that seems to know all the answers and seems to be disinterested in anything of um, um, any kind of truth or substance. 
And for some, as we take our, our, uh, the gospel message out, for some, the idea that we would bow down before anything is offensive. We simply don't see that, that, that or they simply don't see that their lives are oriented around um, money or possessions or their understanding of their self-worth or identity. And the prospect of taking that away is, is, is too much. So when faced with the gospel truth, they reject it. The truth of the Christian lifestyle is too much to handle. And I think that it would be fair to say that we shouldn't necessarily expect our evangelism to be gladly received wherever we go. We trust in a God that will make it work, that he will work out his salvation in the midst of what we are saying and who we're speaking to. But our passage today, I think and I hope and I, I, I trust, because it certainly is this for me, our passage today should come as a relief to each and every single one of us because it should remove some of the burden that I think we feel when it comes to evangelism. Because so often for some of us, we sit there and we think, you know, oh, I'd love to tell that person about Jesus, but what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? Or I'd love to tell that person about Jesus, but, but what happens if they're just not interested? What would I do? Or I'd love to tell that person about Jesus, but what if they respond and then nothing comes of it? Does that mean that I failed? Does that mean that I've fallen short? Does that mean that I'm not doing a good enough job? I don't feel prepared or I don't feel ready to tell other people about Jesus. And their passage this morning should remove some of that burden. Now, that's not to say that, 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 um, that this is an excuse for us not to be prepared to tell others about Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that we should constantly have um, or constantly expect to have to give an answer for our, our faith and for our hope and why we believe what we believe. But in what we're saying is that our fear should not paralyze us. Because we need to realize that we are not the stewards of salvation. I am not the reason that anybody is saved. God takes responsibility for that. And God alone. Now, we are the conduit through which God works in our world and in the lives of those that we encounter. But if we are to live our lives as distinctly Christian in all areas, again, as 1 Peter chapter 3 says, doing so with gentleness and with respect, with keeping a clear conscience, then I think that we might well start to see more and more and more opportunities to share the truth of the gospel with folks around us. We might even be surprised at the impact and the effect our actions and our words have. Even on those who might be standing against us, even on those who might be shouting against us, even on those who we might have deemed by our own standards to be beyond saving. The facts on the ground that we need to reckon with this morning should reinforce to us that there is a truth we carry with us beyond these walls on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening and it is indeed a truth that goes, beyond, it goes against the grain of our society and cuts against everything that our culture says and, and, and perpetuates. But that should not dissuade us from speaking up about it. In fact, just the opposite. Again, in Acts chapter 5, if we experience opposition, if we experience hardship, if folks speak out against us, then be glad. For where there is opposition... There the gospel has taken root as well. Amen.
We are going to um, stand and sing our next.